Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. Let me read this. The only light visible on the surface was emanating from the ship itself, but they too would soon be extinguished, never to be seen again. A black night, April 14th, 1912, but an even rarer calm sea in the North Atlantic. The world's most elegant and largest steamer was midway on her first transatlantic voyage from Southampton to New York City. Indeed, most passengers were fast asleep and secure in the knowledge that the ship they were on was deemed unsinkable. So assured of the safety of the ship, in a bold act of defiance, they had placed only enough lifeboats for half of over 2,000 passengers. But in one of the cabins, young Eva Hart's mom, having been disturbed for days with an ominous premonition, was wide awake, keeping vigil, while her family slept peacefully beneath the blankets. At 11.40 p.m., it struck. The iceberg had played its role that night, and the ship lay mortally wounded. In less than three hours, she would slip beneath the surface to the dark abyss, taking over 1,500 souls with her and would be etched into history as legend. Later, some would say the devil himself had raised his hand and sliced open her side. I speak, of course, of the Titanic. Our guest tonight is Dr. James Delgado, a maritime archeologist who has actually dived on the Titanic. Now, was there more the crew could have done to save more lives? What caused the unsinkable to go down? Is there more to the story than what Hollywood would actually tell us? Tonight, folks, we're going to look at the true story of the RMS Titanic. It is going to be a show to remember. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Welcome, welcome, one and all. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome to Night Fright. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, sit in your most comfy chair, put your feet up and relax. We're going to take you on one heck of a journey tonight, folks. We are going to go beneath the sea looking at the RMS Titanic with an expert on the Titanic. His name is Dr. James Delgado. Uh, he's led or participated in shipwreck expeditions around the world. His undersea explorations include RMS Titanic. The discoveries of the Carpathia, that's the ship that rescued the Titanic survivors. The notorious ghost ship, Marie Celeste, as well as surveys of the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor. And if we have time, definitely we're going to go there as well. The sunken fleet of atomic bomb warships at Bikini Atoll, the polar explorations. You know, I could go on, folks, and in, in a half an hour, it would take me to get through his credentials. www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest's. Uh, book cover that'll take you right to a place where you can get his book and also his link is there just go to his website you're listening to Night Fright your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio the time is now and now your host Brent Holland Folks, we're speaking with an expert tonight on the dive on the Titanic. His name is Dr. James Delgado. Uh, Jim, um, specifically, what were you looking for? What was the main thing that you were looking for to document in your dive on the Titanic? Well, Titanic is a very well-known ship. A great deal has been written about the ship and its history. And there's two massive books that I have on my uh, shelf in my office 
that practically counted down to the rivet. We know the pattern of every bit of China that was on board. We know how each cabin was fitted out. But what we don't know is what happened to Titanic at the very end. There are survivors' accounts, but a forensic sense of just what the ship did when it broke apart is one thing that we were looking at. But the other thing as well, and something very important, not just for understanding what's happening with Titanic, but other deep ocean shipwrecks, is understanding how the environment down there is affecting Titanic, but also how Titanic affects that environment. And that's important for more than just shipwreck archaeology, because there's an awful lot that gets deposited in the ocean. So with those big basic questions, we had a number of other smaller questions that we wanted to ask ourselves and get an answer to, like, is there intact structure inside certain parts of the ship? Uh, what types of artifacts are we seeing and what can they tell us about the people that were on board? A number of those sorts of questions were also there. So with that, we designed a, an expedition working with RMS Titanic, uh, Wade Institute, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, U.S. National Park Service and the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And off we went uh, in August of 2010 to conduct the most comprehensive assessment of Titanic that's ever been done. What were the revelations that you brought back to the service with you? Was there, was there surprises for you? Was there things that you kind of expected that just weren't so? Well, what's amazing is that in 2010 when we went, it had been 25 years since Titanic had first been discovered. And you would think in all that time that there was so much that had been gathered that there would be no more secrets. Well, technology's great in that there were secrets. There still were unknown, unlearned things. And the basic reason is that when you're down there at 3,800 meters depth, it's pitch black. You've got all of that water around you. Just to get there in a sub is two and a half hours just to fall to that depth. You're working in there, and it's much like trying to understand the layout of a, of a downtown area. Let's say you're in downtown Toronto, and you're trying to map it with the power out. It's pitch black. It's raining, and you've got a flashlight that you're holding ahead of you, and your windshield's a little fogged, so you can only see out of about this much of it. That's the way people have been looking at Titanic, for the most part, for the past 25 years. Now, there are, of course, expeditions that happened where you could see more, bigger lights were brought in. Anybody that saw the IMAX film Titanic in the early 1990s got a bigger sense of Titanic. But that only stretches so far. You can see along the deck, say, of the intact bow section, you can't look out into the gloom, uh, out into the field where pieces of Titanic fell, and see what's out there, let alone map it. So a big part of what we were doing was using high-frequency, high-definition sonar to map everything with sound, but also using robots and high-powered lights to film both in 3D and uh, then stitch it into 2D to make photo mosaics of the entire site. And with that, I guess it's like saying you walked into the room and suddenly the lights were turned on. Because now we can see everything, the bow section of Titanic, the stern section of Titanic, and every little piece of Titanic where the ship broke apart and fell to the bottom of the sea. And that's important because our job as archaeologists is not like that of a detective working on a crime scene. Anybody that watches the show CSI understands the first thing you do when you go into the room is you take a careful map of everything you've seen. You plot it on out, you photograph everything, you disturb nothing. And that's what we did with Titanic. It was a look, don't touch expedition. But we mapped it all out, and what was particularly interesting for us was that area on the seabed that represented that missing piece of Titanic. You see, you have a bow and you have a stern, both ends of the ship, but there's a section in between that's gone. And that section disintegrated and fell to the bottom, and that's what we also mapped. So now, as a result of that expedition, I have a map that we're completing, where you can zoom in, and you can go from the big pieces, the, the bow and the stern, to larger pieces, fallen boilers, an engine cylinder, large sections of the hull, one of the ship's stacks or funnels. And you can go from that all the way down to a teacup sitting on the bottom of the sea, and map it and measure it, just as you would on an archaeological site on land. Was there difficulty in getting to the interior of the ship? Because perhaps the compartments have collapsed on themselves? Well, there's difficulty in getting into some areas of the ship, and I'll be, we did not go inside the ship on this expedition. Most of that work has been done and done very well 
by James Cameron. Sure. And of course, he did that not just for Titanic, but for his documentary, Ghosts of the Abyss. And Jim also has a new documentary that's going to be airing in just about uh, another six weeks that talks about how the ship came apart and some of the discoveries they've made. And what he's found with these tiny bots, these little robots that he's flown in, is incredible preservation in some of the deeper areas inside Titanic. Dishes still stacked, furniture healed over, a bed with a bit of a nightgown still draped over its frame instead of the ghost town. Ah, oh, geez, you know, and uh, that brings up... Uh a lot of emotions there because uh, this is a, we have to be respectful because it is a graveyard of course uh, many many people lost their lives there whole families were, were just decimated in one fell swoop um, how do you deal with that aspect when you're down there um, are you ever conscious of the fact that this is indeed a graveyard uh, it's hallowed ground if you will you never forget that actually you're always aware of it I've worked on a variety of sites where there's been a great loss of life Titanic is one of those. You, how could you forget, particularly with a site like Titanic, where because you're down there, because of the conditions that are down there, well, Titanic's changed a bit from the day it sank. In some ways it hasn't. It is a moment frozen in time. I mean, you have impact marks where the ship hit the bottom and skidded in the mud, and that mud skid is as fresh as it was a hundred years ago put down. You have areas inside the ship, as I said, that are very intact. And you have things lying here and there that remind you that this is a place where people died. We don't see the people themselves, but you do see areas clearly where they came to rest. You see their shoes lying side by side, in some cases still laced up. You see other things. Uh, there's a one area where there's a pair of boots sticking out from what appears to be a large overcoat. It's pretty clear what you're looking at there, even though the people are gone because the environmental conditions down there, the, the clay is very acidic and the water is so starved from minerals and, uh, and even oxygen that bone dissolves. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it is a graveyard. And if you know the stories and you are there, I think what confronts you is the realization that this isn't just a movie, this isn't a book, yes. this, is, this is where it happened. And because it is so fresh and raw in some ways, you get that. I certainly got it on my first dive to Titanic, as many others have. When you're moving along the decks, you get to the boat deck area where the davit is still in place for lifeboat number eight. Eight's a pretty important lifeboat, not because of who got in it, but because of who didn't. In this case, it was a couple, Isadora and Ida Strauss, rich, famous, founders of apartment store. She could get in the boat, as could the maid, because they were women, and it was women and children first, but Mr. Strauss could not. And Mrs. Strauss didn't want to go without her. So she got out of that boat, and the officers tried to get her back in, but she said something pretty powerful, and that was, she and her husband had been married for more than five decades, and she loved him. And where he was gonna go, she'd go. And they went, and they sat down on a bench, and they died together. Now that's a powerful story. And it is even more so when you're there at that spot and you see where it happened. So yeah, there's not a second that goes by when you're not mindful of exactly where you are when you're down on Titanic. It just brings it the, the whole reality of it right to your face, doesn't it? It's funny, I'm living here in Kingston now, and um, the founding father, if you will, of Canada, his name is uh, Sir John A. MacDonald, is buried here. We happened to go to his grave a couple of weeks ago. And to think that this living being is actually buried he's not living anymore obviously but he's buried there there's a connection that happens uh it brings it out of the history books uh it brings it out of the documentaries and it brings it very real up front i think that's the great benefit that archaeology brings to us is that connection that real life connection that these are indeed people like we are with real lives Folks, we're speaking with an expert on the Titanic, on all maritime uh, archaeological uh, finds, if you will. His name is Dr. James Delgado, www.nightfrightshow.com. Lots of time left, folks. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the Titanic, uh, what brought her down, uh, some of the ramifications of that, and also Dr. Delgado dove on the Titanic, and we're talking about the revelations that uh, he discovered right now. Um, Jim, was there other things uh, 
that you discovered uh, perhaps that were taken as taken as fact and uh, perhaps perhaps uh, changing a little bit of the facts. I talk, of course, of the actual place where the iceberg cut open the Tyat. Actually, it didn't cut it open. It just popped the rivets. Were you able to get inside at all and take a look at that, or is that just too far down? Well, that wasn't us, but previous expeditions have. A scientist by the name of Paul Mathias used a sonar that penetrates through mud to take a look at image damage to Titanic's hull, and you can certainly see a series of slits and bumps and scrapes and places where plates had separated and rivets had sheared that represents the area that where Titanic presumably struck the iceberg. What's interesting is that there's damage on the other side too. So trying to sort that out as to what's damage from striking the seabed, what's damage hitting the iceberg, that's still a little bit up in the air. Uh, Jim Cameron has also been inside there. They've taken a good hard look at things and I imagine revelations from those interior explorations of Titanic that Jim will be revealing just in a few weeks' time. In a few weeks, okay. Um, other questions about this. Was there things that the... It was a new crew. Um, it was a new boat. Was there things that perhaps the crew could have done that they just were not aware of to save more lives? Well, first, you had a number of people on board that were veterans. They had great amount of service. This was the flagship of the White Star Line. You had the Commodore of the White Star Line, Captain yes. Edward J. Smith, in command. Uh, so the crew were very skilled with tremendous experience, but they hadn't worked together. And so there were a few things here and there where things might have been better. The alarm could have been spread more efficiently, perhaps, but the ship was already flooding. You couldn't get into certain areas. Uh, the fact that because of the class structure of the day, the fact that they wanted to keep certain people from flooding the decks, and we're talking now about the third class, the people in steerage, people were locked below. That, of course, could have been done differently. There was some confusion in the order, in, in the orders and in terms of loading the boats, a very strict interpretation of women and children meant only women and children in a couple of cases when the boat was only partially filled, which was a, a terrible, terrible thing because then the men that were there who could have gotten into the boat did and died. Of course, the big question is, uh, should they have tried to swerve out of the way and not hit the iceberg? Well, I think that's anybody who's ever been out in the middle of the road on a dark night and suddenly had an animal dash in front of them. Uh, what do you do? If you swerve, which is your inclination, you're likely to go off the road, you might hit a tree. If you're cold-hearted and you can't just, you know, you're going you're to hit that animal, right? You're going to just drive straight and hit that animal. And you realize your car will likely be damaged, but, you know, you'll, you'll probably live through it as opposed to going off the road. No, most people don't think that way. You're going to swerve. And that's what they did with Titanic. Had they hit the iceberg head on, hundreds would have died. The ship would have flooded. It might have stayed afloat. Um, but do you want to be the guy that's there at the inquiry and they're saying, so, Captain uh, and First Officer and other officer and helmsman, uh, what made you hit the iceberg head on? Well, we just had a sense that if we sideswipe the iceberg, we might open up enough watertight compartments to flood it. The whole thing would go down. We don't have enough lifeboats and 1,500 people would die. Right. So, yeah, hindsight's a great thing. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, quarter, uh, Monday morning quarterbacks, as they call them. Um, the crow's nest. I wanted to ask you this. There was talk about the crow's nest. Where is the crow's nest on the ship? Is it at the front of the ship? Is it in the middle? Is it at the back? The crow's nest, or the lookout position, is on the foremast, right up at the front of the ship. Uh, and that's where Frederick Fleet, uh, with his lookout mate, would spot the bird, and as you saw in the James Cameron film, ring the bell, crank the telephone, talk to the bridge, and say, iceberg right ahead. Yeah, and that was the norm back then, too, to have guys up there, and, and because uh, the Marconi system, the wireless system, was brand new, and uh, people were not using it, I guess, uh, as an emergency tool the way they do now, in a certain sense, because there was warnings coming in about ice, and I mean, they'd been transversing the, the Atlantic for years, and as you say, E.G. Smith had all this experience, and he'd been going across back and forth, back and forth, without the use of a, of a telegram, and this is the way that was done. So, 
Well, bear in mind too, this is a time before you have radar. You also don't even have sonar, which was an important tool for pinging out ahead of you and seeing what lay beneath the water. Because remember, an iceberg only sticks up so much. The bulk of it is down below. One of the great ironies with Titanic is that it was a Canadian inventor, Essendon, who, looking at all of this, came up with a system that he first proposed to send a sonar ping out ahead of a ship to try to find an iceberg and to avoid it. Uh, that technology would prove successful. One of the great things they found when they tested it just before the First World War in 1913 is when they pinged for the ice ahead, they had another echo and they realized that the ping had also hit the bottom of the ocean and bounced back. That's the origin of the technology that ultimately would be used to find Titanic in 1985. It's sonar, which today we use to map the bottom of the sea, and what we use to map Titanic in 2010. And that technology was propelled forward by the Titanic disaster. Dr. James Delgado is our guest tonight, folks. We're talking about the Titanic disaster all night long. Um, easy way to get his book, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on his book cover. That'll bring you right to a place where you can order the book online. Also, there will be a link to Dr. Delgado's website. There's videos there. Uh, there are articles there on other dives he's taken. I urge you all to go there. I have spent the past two or three days there. It is a wealth of of information folks uh, without a doubt you will not be disappointed if you go there um, let's go back now now the Californian um, the Californian folks was a ship that was about 10 15 miles away um, unfortunately it didn't respond to the calls to the uh, to the flares that were sent up any speculation as to why it would seem to me any experienced maritimer that's out on the ocean sees a light some type of flare that's an emergency and you would just turn around and head towards it yet the california the captain of the california decided not to any speculation of what happened there one of the aftermath changes in law that came about as a result of the titanic was the order that all ships henceforth would only use flares as an emergency signal. Up till that time, that wasn't the case. Oh, I didn't know so, that. So, the excuse of the guys on the Californian was it was a big ocean liner going by and they were firing rockets to amuse the passengers. Ah, so that was, okay. Uh, the Carpathian. Um, what revelations did you discover about the Carpathian? Because I know you've studied this as well. Carpathia is a famous Carpathia. ship. Because of course, it's the vessel that rescued Titanic survivors, and its saga is important. A tiny little liner for the Inman Line. It uh, was sort of an indistinguished ship. Just made the regular immigrant run, the backbone of trade that carried people from the Mediterranean, in particular, back to the States, or and also to Canada. Carpathia answered the call because her wireless operator had not gone to bed. One of the other things that happened with the Titanic disaster is that that wireless technology where you could call for help, you didn't have to stand a 24-hour watch. So they turned the thing off at night and everybody go to bed. Well, Titanic struck the iceberg at 11.40 p.m. on April 14th. And by the time she started sending out her message, most everybody had gone to bed. A handful of ships got it and soon the word spread. And one of those was Carpathia. And Harold Cottam, the wireless operator, was in his cabin. He was just, he had his headset on. He was undoing his boots because Cottam was a, a keener. He's an early adapter. He's the kind of guy that when the internet first came on would be one of the first guys to sign on. Uh, so he's listening. He gets the call from Titanic. He dashes into the captain's cabin. Captain Arthur Rostron was asleep. But being a good captain, he was known as the electric spark, by the way, because he was that quick. Rostron asked Cottam if he was absolutely sure, ordered his ship turned around, and made a desperate race to reach Titanic. They got there too late, but the fact that they got there was important because the wind was coming up that flat, calm sea, Titanic had sunk and was going away, and it might have been more dense. Perhaps everybody had the Carpathia non shown up. Carpathia died herself a few years later, torpedoed by a German U boat off the coast of Ireland. We went out and found in 2000. And what we learned more about Carpathia was just how she had died. 
uh, no revelations in regard to the Titanic disaster, but for me what was the most striking, again, was this sense, as you find when you're on Titanic, that there you are with the real thing, the real ship. It's not looking at a marker or a memorial, it's not a picture on a wall, it's not a bell in a museum, it's the ship itself sitting down there. And for us then, Titanic, Carpathia, the, the power of the story came through. One of the things that was very striking for me was the fact that I had just been on the boat deck of Titanic a few weeks earlier uh, on my first expedition to the ship and then a few weeks later with a robot was looking at where those very lifeboats had come up alongside to discharge Titanic survivors into the waiting Carpathia and that link was a powerful one. I bet and there was a loss of life there too as well so Again, some of the crew were, some of the crew did die in the torpedoing. Yes. Jeez. What is the lure of the sea for humankind? We've been transversing the sea back and forth. Now a lot of people will default and say, "Oh, it's because we want to just move goods from one area to the other. It's financial. That's that's the reason why we go to the sea." I suspect it's far more natural than that. What's your opinion on that? All life came from the sea and we are sea creatures in our own way. We carry the basic structure of the ocean in our own blood. And whether you live inland, whether you live on a coast, you do have this link to the ocean. It's powerful, it tugs at you, and you're not isolated from it too, by the way, regardless of where you live, because 90% of the world's goods do move on water, and that computer, those tennis shoes, the food you're eating, it doesn't come to your, uh, your store by an airplane. It comes on a ship, and then from a ship is loaded onto a truck or to a, or a train car. But as well, it's part of our lore. It's part of who we are as, as a culture, particularly in the West. And there's so many great stories that are caught up in it. The ocean is a place that you can fear, but it's also a place that you can enjoy. It's a place that one respects. Whether you stand on the beach and witness its raw fury beating against the rocks, or the placid, peaceful nature of it as the sun sinks into it on the West Coast. It's, it's a compelling thing. It's just, um, you're right, it's as natural for us as breathing, without question. It's part of our life, it's part of our heritage. What, um, you know, we had talked before, you had mentioned before, not only the impact that the environment has had on the Titanic, but the, uh, impact on the environment that the Titanic held. I want to go to Bikini, um, I was going to say Bikini Island. Um, where is it? The dive. Thank you very much. Because all the nuclear tests were done there, the atomic bomb tests. What has that done to the environment? And were you safe enough to dive on that? Well, first off, yes, you are safe enough to, it is safe for you to dive there. Because water is a good shield for radiation. Most nuclear power plants, as you recall, have water shields. Mm -hmm. The atomic tests at Bikini were the first tests of, the, of nuclear weapons in the aftermath of the Second World War. In July 1946, two bombs were detonated, the same type of bombs that had been dropped on Nagasaki, Japan. Now, these tests were naval tests. They had ships moored into a target array. They wanted to see what the bomb would do to them. They also wanted to see what the bomb would do to things on board those ships, from uniforms and tanks and weapons. 5,000 test animals that were on board the ships as well. Oh, I didn't know Those that part. two tests were the first of a series of tests. More than, well, over 26 announced nuclear tests at Bikini, including the largest surface detonation of a nuclear weapon ever, the Castle Bravo detonation in 1954, which uh, was a city vaporizing weapon. You're talking uh, not uh, kilotons, which is what the Nagasaki or Hiroshima bombs were, but megatons. This was a hydrogen bomb. And the, the legacy of that, by the way, when you approach Bikini by air, flying out there in the midst of the Pacific and the Marshall Islands, is you come across the deep blue of the ocean, you approach the fringe, the coral and white sand, the green trees, the aqua, azure water of the ring of this atoll, this circular island formation, and all of a sudden in the midst of that is a big deep blue hole. And that's where an island was vaporized by that hydrogen bomb. That legacy has, of course, played out not only in terms of the sunken ships there and the bunkers and the abandoned 
cables and the craters from firing these things off, but from radiation that remains in the soil, particularly byproducts, fallout, if you will, plutonium, americium, cesium, all of that there in the soil, which means that you can't live there on Bikini and you can visit, you can visit for a period of time, but you can't eat the stuff. Uh, coconuts, other plants, they soak up the fallout, and you just, you, it's unhealthy to eat that. You can't drink the groundwater, so if you stay there, you bring all of your stuff in. That means that the Bikini Islanders, who were evacuated for the tests, could never really go home. Today, they're still called the nuclear nomads of the Pacific decades on. But the islands are open, occasionally for visitors who go to dive the ships. It's an incredible collection of ships, an aircraft carrier, the USS Saratoga, Japanese battleship Nagato, on which the Pearl Harbor attack was planned, the American battleship USS Arkansas, the destroyers Lampson and Anderson, the submarines Pilotfish and Apagon, landing craft galore, uh, two attack transports, the Gilliam and Carlisle. All of these ships are an unparalleled museum, if you will, of the beginning of the atomic age at a time when we were perhaps a little more naive about these things and, uh, before we learned some harsh lessons uh, as a result of our ongoing flirtation with the genie that we let out of the bottle in 1945. Is it safe to eat the fish that are around oh, there? Oh, is that right? Okay. Now, yeah, the, you reason, the reason why I asked that, it's a segue. I was down in San Diego uh, around Christmas time beautiful city folks trust me if you ever want to go to a beautiful city go to San Diego just gorgeous saw the uh, USS Reagan uh, huge huge aircraft carrier I think it's the biggest aircraft carrier ever made it can go out under nuclear power for 18 years if something God forbid happened and that aircraft carrier was to go down what would the ramifications of having a nuclear power plant virtually on board be to the environment under the sea? Are we playing with fire again with that? Or are there safety features in involved? There are a number of reactors that are already at the bottom of the sea oh. as a result of atomic accidents and also because when they get too hot, the practice in the former Soviet Union was to just take them out and dump them in the ocean, so particularly up in the Arctic. There are a large number of very radioactive Soviet reactors sitting in the mud in the ocean already. In some cases where there's been a fear of radiation leakage, people have gone in and they've pumped concrete around some of these. It's also been done in the case of a nuclear submarine, the Komsomolets, which sank and which had nuclear warheads which were exposed and also leaking. And so the Russians went back and they pumped concrete into those tubes to lock them in and also to dampen down the radiation. But radiation takes a long time to go away. The half-life of plutonium is 240,000 years. So, yeah, there's, there are problems for sure if a reactor goes down. And I think, you know, when you look at what's happening, particularly in terms of transport of, of atomic material, I guess that's the, the real issue. Yes. It's gonna be hot in that area, but as long as that stuff's not breaking apart or diffusing, that's where you really get into trouble, is you have, like I said, the fallout in bikini. That gets eaten and transported to other animals, gets into the food chain, that's a problem. But if you have a very hot spot glowing down there, as long as it doesn't melt, go critical, whatever, then you're not going to have as much of an issue. The Costa Concordia, I want to bring it right up to modern day, and uh, this tragedy has just taken place uh, about a few weeks ago. What happened there? Um, I would think in this day and age that something like that would have been impossible. Um, it just, I guess it just brings back that whole arrogant thing that uh, I mentioned at the beginning that perhaps my own arrogance was to believe that a ship that size could not go down again. Well, one thing we find when we study shipwrecks is the same thing you find when you study any kind of accident. What's the number one cause of most accidents? Human, um, human error. Human error. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, now you have collision avoidance. You've got all this other stuff happening. You've got radar. You've got GPS. It still won't save you if you make a mistake. Yeah. And that lesson hit home with Titanic, and we keep doing it over and over again in 1954. 
Two ships with radar collided off Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and the Andrea Doria went down. A mistake is made in manufacturing an O-ring and a space shuttle blows up. Yeah. A tile falls off and another space shuttle burns up in the atmosphere. There, it happens. It happens because we're human. Yeah. The risks are there, but we balance the risks versus the achievement, if you will. The uh, to push humanity forward and I, I think that's something that we should also remember as well as the fact that yeah we do take the risks but we have to in order to move humanity forward because it's the ideas these positive ideas that are going to get us out of these uh, people flying airplanes into uh, world trade centers uh, that's archaic thinking and we have to move forward and uh, bring humanity along with us and those are the ideas that are going to do that and definitely um, you're at the forefront of that all the dies you've done have you ever been in fear for your own mortality of course uh, every dive no, not every dive but <laughs> certainly with a few it's not without its risk mm. but you're trained. One of the things you learn when you're trained is to plan your dive and dive your plan. Uh, you have redundancies, you have backups. Diving is not a uh, thing to do for the macho. It's a contemplative, careful thing. The best divers I know are not beat their chest, brag your types. Uh, they're thoughtful, introspective, careful people uh, who will risk it in a way by doing the work, but not stupidly. In fact, the best dive partners I've had have been people that are like that. Uh, and in particular, uh, people who understand that uh, you're an invited guest on life support when you're in the ocean and working. And uh, you conduct yourself accordingly. Would you like to go to space? You had mentioned space before. Absolutely. I'd love to go to space. What's interesting is that recently meeting and they were talking in this meeting not only about protecting underwater cultural heritage but in the United States the National uh, NASA, National Aeronautics and Space Administration has come up with guidelines for protecting the moon landing sites because the sense is that within a few years space tourism may happen and then what do you do? Is the site of the Apollo 11 moon landing a significant place in the history of humankind? Well of course it is. Do you let somebody just come along and land and suddenly they're there taking their snapshots and their footprint obliterates the Armstrong. <laughs> if you let somebody come along and pick up the flag or the camera they left behind or cut up and sell for scrap the base of the lunar lander? Uh, no. And do you deal with this as an archaeological, as a historical site? So that was interesting, sitting there and going, oh yeah, and you know, maybe they need an underwater archaeologist to go and be the first space archaeologist. So of course, yeah, I'd love that would be a lot of fun, without question, and uh, what an experience that would be. Now, you bring up a very good point about the historical aspects. Um, I was watching a documentary on when they opened up um, the pyramid, uh, King Tutankhamun. can't pronounce his name correctly, and inside they found a boat, and uh, there was a big archaeological find, and I'm wondering for future generations, would you think that there would be a way to preserve somehow the Titanic for future generations to uh, perhaps view somehow like that instead of it having being collapsing all the time? Well, a couple things. First off, Titanic, when it was found, was just about to go through what we'd like to call a sort of a midlife crisis. The ship is not in a regular cycle of decay and falling apart, as best we can tell. In some ways, it's almost at a stable point. In fact, what we've realized in some of the study is that all the non-steel parts of Titanic stopped deteriorating about 1940. Now, there is change to some of the steel, but the reports that you read in the media about the bacteria consuming the metal and it's all going to be gone, Titanic's going to be around for centuries. It looks different the way it was when it was found in 1985 and that's just because it reached a point where a couple of things happened to start to change it and a little more dramatically particularly with some of the lighter metal up in the superstructure that happens with all shipwrecks and actually if you look at titanic compare it between 85 and 2010 yeah there's change but it's not as dramatic as say some of the ships in shallower water that have worked on so titanic will be around for a very long time 
And in part of the mission in 2010 as well was to virtually preserve Titanic and bring it to the surface. And that's why we covered every square centimeter of that wreck with 3D cameras. That all put together is ultimately going to result in a product where you could sit in a studio, put your glasses on, put your helmet on, whatever it is. Maybe one of these days we'll actually invent a Star Trek holodeck. You can walk the decks of Titanic as we saw her in 2010, 3D, and experience it. And that's one of the byproducts of that expedition. And you don't have to pay a lot of money to get into a sub and let it all hang out to, to do so. That's fantastic. That's uh, really exciting news. You had wrote a book on the atomic bombs. And did you do any studies uh, around the Cuban Missile Crisis? A bit, and actually went to some of those sites in Cuba, yeah. The missile's still there? No, no. Long gone, taken out. Otherwise, I think history would have been a little different in the 60s. Okay. Any chance you think the miss there could be some missiles there somewhere? No, I don't think so. Those were, those were uh, on... Movable missiles, not in silos or anything of that sort, but on launch platforms, and it was very carefully documented. The United States was watching it all. Okay. Uh, so, no, not there. The issue, actually, the number of nuclear weapons has declined, uh, but just even one is not necessarily a good day. And proliferation remains a big problem, of course, that's very much in the news right now. Yeah, with Iran, without question. Um, I've seen what nuclear weapons can do. And it is very, very sobering. And just consider this. The ships at Bikini that we dived upon, the aircraft carrier Saratoga, this is a 300-meter-long ship. It's as big as Titanic. It was lifted out of the water by this nuclear detonation and hurtled several hundred meters. It was lifted 30 meters out of the water in the first of a series of nuclear tidal waves. It has a thousand watertight compartments and it was wrenched and battered so much that it sank in seven and a half hours because every one of them sprang a leak. It has a dent in its flight deck, its armored flight deck, that is 70 meters long by 20 meters wide and 10 meters deep and that's just one big dent. That's from a nuclear weapon that today one could carry in a suitcase. Consider that a single massive weapon, like a hydrogen bomb, would leave nothing, as in the case of that island at Bikini, where there's nothing now but a hundred meter deep, kilometer wide hole where an island had once been. Pearl Harbor. When you went down and looked at the Arizona, uh, once again, this is a tragedy. Um, what were some of the things you were looking for when you dove on the Arizona? Well, Arizona, when she sank on December 7, 1941, in the Japanese attack on the U.S. fleet, was iconic in many ways, much like Titanic, in that her destruction, witnessed by everybody, was so dramatic. Here you have a battleship, a battleship that's been around since the end of the First World War, the epitome of naval fighting, the, 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 the end-all and be-all, not just for the U.S. Navy, but for the Royal Navy and others. And yet, in a single moment, the ship blows up, killing you know, most of her crew, and rains pieces of the ship and her crew for well over a kilometer. Uh, the fireball climbs into the sky, the shockwave could be felt. People were stunned. Arizona, of course, remained there, unable to be raised. Ultimately, the ship became the setting of the memorial that today spans but does not touch that hull millions have paid their, their respects out there at the Arizona Memorial. For all of that, there was a great deal that wasn't known about Arizona. And so diving on the ship was incredible. We, a number of people were involved. This was all done by the U.S. National Park Service, uh, working with the U.S. Navy. The dives through the years yield a tremendous amount of information. First off, about how Arizona is changing, how it is deteriorating in the shallow warm waters how it continues to leak oil, but also things about that day that I think were rather powerful. When you swim up to Arizona, you're very mindful of the fact that it is a setting for all of that loss. You get that, you can see the battle damage. You can swim up though and see the ports. The glass still intact and sealed in there between the dead lake cover because everything was set for battle conditions. So it's sealed in there. You've got metal, glass, and very little water in between and the metal is still brightly painted. 
because it's been there's no oxygen left in there. You can see a little bit of oil and water that has leaked in. And so for that moment, inside there, it's still December 7, 1941. But it's also December 7, 1941 when you swim over those decks. And in particular, something that struck all of us was the fact that moving across the deck forward, you could see battle damage. The teak deck is still intact under the mud. Some of that moves away. You can see not only the deck and how it's buckled and bent, where Arizona took that hit and blew up forward, but you also see fire hoses, and that's when you begin to realize what you're looking at. And again, it's a frozen moment in time. In the midst of the attack, Arizona was hit several times. Bombs were landing alongside her, punching through her decks, and ultimately would be one rather large bomb that would punch through the deck between the number one and number two turret, set off a powder magazine that would send off more than a million tons of powder and just destroy the ship. But before that happened, there were fires burning everywhere and the crew were working it with the fire hoses and they were snaking those lines out. And what you realize when you're there swimming along the line is that's where they were and that's where they died when they literally evaporated in the fireball with their fire hoses. They died standing trying to save their ship and their shipmates. And that's a pretty powerful moment. You know, uh, you deal with death but you deal with life at the same time. I guess there are lessons learned, aren't there, from both? Absolutely, and I think the other thing that I've seen, particularly with a number of these shipwrecks, is that out of this loss comes life, particularly in some of these wrecks in different parts of the world. They're now a habitat for all sorts of creatures, and in some cases, when ships sink in the areas, they become an oasis, they become a reef, an artificial reef, if you will, that helps sustain life. And so an awful lot of what we do as archaeologists is we work with our colleagues in the natural sciences to understand and to work with that because our understanding of our relationship with the sea and what we do with the sea is just as important as understanding what we've done historically. Okay. We're going to have to start to wrap up now, folks. We've been speaking with Dr. James Delgado. He is a PhD, of course. He is FRGS. What is that? Say? Frogs. What is, what is that an acronym for? Uh, fellow of the Royal Geographical Society in London. We get that for I guess ostensibly being an explorer. Okay, very good, very good. Um, he's led and participated in shipwreck expeditions around the world. Uh, just let me grab this. He under his undersea explorations include RMS Titanic, which we've been discovering, um, discussing tonight. The discoveries of Carpathia, the ship that rescued Titanic survivors. The notorious ghost ship Mary Celeste. Mary Celeste. Why is it a ghost ship? Mary Celeste, built in Halifax, a great Canadian story, was found drifting in the North Atlantic with nary a soul on board, but as legend would say, the table was set, the sails were there. Captain Benjamin Briggs, his wife, his baby, and his crew had disappeared. And that story, repeated through the years and made famous by uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, remains with us to this day. Uh, Mary Celeste was found by another ship, brought into port. The mystery has never been completely answered as to what happened to the crew of the Mary Celeste. But she ended her days on a reef in Haiti, run aground by a captain seeking insurance money. And that's where we found her bones. Jeez. Any speculation what happened? There are a number of stories as to what may have happened. Everything from tales of madness and murder to a leaking alcohol, a high volatile of alcohol, not drinking alcohol. Cargo that led the crew to feel that the ship was about to blow up. A tiny boat on a heavy sea, overcrowded, and in a moment, perhaps, a wave comes along, the gunnel slips beneath, and that's all she wrote. So who knows? Uh, are you a believer in the Bermuda Triangle? Well, I've got you. Well, I've certainly spent a lot of time in the Bermuda Triangle. On the last ship excavations I did was in Bermuda. Bermuda has always had a bad reputation since the early Spanish explorers, Juan Bermudez in particular, who would give the island his name, talked about it being the island of devils because of the strange noises he heard. They probably needed to bring a naturalist along to explain just how birds sound in certain circumstances. But uh, no, Bermuda just, it's a spot in the ocean where ships seem to wreck themselves. And that's no mystery to any of us. All you have to do is drive a certain route, you know, certain inter interchanges, spots on the highway, they're bad parts of the road, and that's the same thing at sea. Yeah, watch the, uh, watch the highway on your way back, because uh, did you fly in or did you drive? Oh, we, we flew in. Oh, you're going to be fine, don't worry, because parts of that highway are notorious. Um, 
very, very bad highway there. Uh, folks, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. James Delgado. I'm Brent Hawk. Thank you, sir, for coming on the show. Much, much appreciated. And uh, it's just been thoroughly, thoroughly invigorating for me because I love this stuff. Well, thank you. And I, I also want to thank my friends at Science North here in Sudbury, not only for bringing me back home to Canada, but also for the opportunity to talk about Titanic with, uh, with all of their guests. And, and yours, too. So thank you. Thank you. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time.
You're listening to Night Fright and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. (laughs) 